Welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers of TV and filmmakers. And boy, have we got a filmmaker for you today. We got two of them for you today. Um, Joining us at the midpoint of the show live is wonderful young filmmaker Michael Cuenca, uh, talking about his new film, I'll Be Around. He just uh, finished a virtual four-day screening and Q&A at the American Cinematheque. Um, so we're going to talk to him. It's a very interesting film, Financing Through Seed and Spark. And number one, it's gorgeous. Number two, it's very creative, very inventive for the 30-somethings out there. But before we get to Michael, um, I'm thrilled uh, that to be able to run, now I've heavily edited this interview because it was over an hour long. Um, I spoke with R- director Rod Lurie. Um, Rod holds a very dear spot in my heart as does his latest film, The Outpost. I'm just going to call it like I see it, folks. This is the best picture of the year, period. Um, it is based on Jake Tapper's 2012 best-selling nonfiction book, The Outpost, an untold story of American valor. I had the pleasure of reading Jake's book when it was released back in 2012. It's an even bigger pleasure and thrill to see what Rod has done uh, bringing this film to life. Um, this focuses on the battle of uh, the Battle of Kamdash. In Afghanistan, October 3, 2009, it remains the bloodiest American engagement of the Afghan war in 2009. And the men of, of combat outpost Keating, uh, Bravo Troop 361 Cav, became one of the most decorated units of the 19-year Afghan war conflict. Um, this is as a result of what happened at camp at uh, combat outpost Keating in the Battle of Kamdesh, military procedures were shifted. Uh, part of the of the 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 issue with this battle was that the outpost was in a valley surrounded by hills, making it very easy for the Taliban and others to attack from up high. I don't understand why the military put a base down low in a valley, but they did. Um, You always want the high ground. The cast is exemplary. And you talk about next generation Hollywood people. We've got Scott Eastwood, Milo Gibson, um, James Jagger, Alan Alda's grandson, Scott Alda Coffey, Will Attenborough who is Richard Attenborough's grandson, plus Orlando Bloom, Caleb Landry-Jones. We're talking Oscar, Oscar, Oscar for Caleb's performance as Soldier Ty Carter, Alfie Stewart, Corey Hardrick, Kwame Patterson, and then the technical expertise in this film is superlative. This is a war movie. This is not a romanticized, fictionalized tale. This is a hardcore war movie it's an emotional powerhouse it grabs your heart and soul with both hands it doesn't let go we connect with each and every man we get to know them we laugh with them we ache for them 
it is, you will be on the edge of your seat when you watch this film. And I can't say enough about the sound design. Sound design is exemplary. Chris Casavant and Ryan Nowak, the sound, supervising sound editor and sound designer, uh, as well as Lorenzo Senatore's incredible cinematography. So, because this is a little lengthy and we're not cutting this interview short today, so when Michael calls in, he's going to be on hold for a little bit. Without any further ado, here is my exclusive with Rod Lurie talking about Best Picture of the Year, for sure, The Outpost. Debbie! Hello, my friend! How are you? Oh, my goodness, what a nice thing you wrote last night. Always, that was nice. Take, take all the time you need. You're, I specifically asked that you be the last person so that oh. there's no such thing as going over. Oh, so. Rod, that is so sweet. You seriously, Rod, outdid yourself with this film. Thank you. And I still, still cannot really find all the words to express my feelings on this film, the emotional impact of this film. I have read Jake's book. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I have I read Jake's book. I was astounded by the book. Yeah. And of course, it's I always. It's an amazing book, yeah. And I always follow documentaries like this, like I mentioned with Strepo, um, yes. what the boys did. And this is so important to me. I had a grandfather who was in World War One. He was in the Army out of Fort Benning for, he was a lifer. And right. so I have great reverence and respect. Um, during the first Gulf War, I had guys I knew, people I knew that were deployed over there that did not come back. So I always, I try and see and read everything I can when right. we have a true story like this. So I read Jake's book, and I thought it was fabulous. But to see what you have done putting this on film, right. normally a book lets your imagination take hold and visualize. There is right. nothing that I visualized reading the book that was anywhere near as emotional and visceral as watching this on screen. Well, we, you know, you know we're really going for the... Uh for this to be emotional because it was emotional yeah. you know you speak to all these guys that were in that battle Debbie and they're you know they, they, they cry when they talk about the battle that it was it was such a haunting uh, moment in their lives and probably the most important you know moment in you know in all of their lives all of these soldiers incredibly important I watch always watch to the bitter end of the credits I never leave the theater until the last credit, till the lights come up. I also don't want to trip. I also don't want to trip and fall. So, wait for the lights. So I sat here and I watched this to the bitter end, and I was in tears, hearing each of the soldiers during the end credits talking. Yeah, you know, and those soldiers were in tears watching this film. We showed this movie. We showed the outpost to. People who had been in the battle, and we showed the movie to family members uh, of the fallen. Uh, we did that in D.C. last October. Mm -hmm. Jake Tapper and I did. We did it together um, at the Brookings Institute. And the level of sort of emotionality that all these people went through watching it was immense. 
mean, they were all wrecks, but they were also very, very grateful that the film was made, especially the Gold Star families, because they knew that we were giving life to their deceased sons or their, mm -hmm. their deceased husbands. And so, it, you know, and friends. So, um, so boy, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, you're hitting a nerve with me right now. Uh, I, and it's, it's really, it's, you know, very emotional for me to make this film. Oh, well, I mean, I was, I, I was a soldier, you know. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm I'm making for you know for my brothers and sisters, although um, not many women in this movie. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, but still, it is a very powerful um, event in my life making this film. But you also, I don't think there is another. There personally, for me personally, there was no director out there other than you that should make this film, this particular film? Well, I, I think there's, an, I, you know, normally I, I wouldn't say that about myself at, at all, Debbie, you know. Um, you know, I've, uh, I, I hold some other directors in high esteem, but I will tell you that there's nobody that would have made it like me because yeah. I'm coming from a, pay, a place, at least among the soldiers of uh, personal experience, um, and, you know, and I hold them in, in a regard that I think they need to be held to to make this film, to make this film properly. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, you know, I was not the first director on this film. I, I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't it know was, that. Yeah, the first director was Sam Raimi. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Sam decided not to direct it and he decided to produce it and he met with me about directing it, and I wasn't available uh, for a couple of years. And when I became available, he was no longer producing. But uh, a person I worked for him was, and he asked me to he asked me to make the film, and we got it over to Millennium, which is a company that usually makes like shoot-'em-ups, like Rambo or The Expendables. Yeah, they've done a ton of and, stuff with Stallone. Yeah. Yeah, and and um, and uh, you know they agreed to make it, and they agreed to make it, you know, in, in a non-exploitative way, and they agreed to make it as a war film as opposed to an action film. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and it, you know, they, they were, you know, a lot of Israelis are in that company, and the Israelis have been in war a lot, and all these guys have been in the military, and so they were able to empathize uh, also with the soldiers in this film. Uh, uh, you know, it just, you look at the faces, not just your big name actors, but you look at all of the others that are part of the company, the ones that are on the medevac, the ones that are coming in on Apaches, the ones that are coming in with Portis. Um, and you see them all and you see the earnestness, the gravitas of the situation. They all know. And this is not, you know, it's not a Hollywood look. This right. this comes from it's their gut. No, this... no, no, no. That, that's not. That was never the point of this film. The point of, of this film was to get it as authentic as we possibly could, which means, by definition, it's not going to have a um, a Hollywood look. Yeah. You know, it, it's not. A, it's not meant to be um, a slick film. You know, the movies that I was most inspired by were the movies that were sort of the most realistic in their approach. A movie, say, like Platoon or or The Hurt Locker, didn't influence me as much as they inspired me because mm -hmm. you know they were they were so grounded in in uh, in, in reality. 
there's the only sort of there's one movie moment in the movie, a movie movie moment, and that's when the character played by Scott Eastwood comes into his unit and he says, "Hey, Red Platoon, it's time to take this bitch back," which you could almost think Scott Eastwood's dad would have like really delivered that line really well years ago. Oh yeah. But but that happens. But that's actually precisely what happened. Wow. And you know, and I guess it was a movie moment on the on the actual battlefield. But you know, you know, I'm, what what you are identified as a quality of the film makes me very happy because it's really what we sought out more than more than anything else in the making of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I look at the faces, and this is raw. This is real. You can right. tell that so many of these men on that screen have been in that situation, and it's like it's all coming back. I'm not going to say it was cathartic for any of them, uh, because I don't think that there was any kind of catharsis that can ever, ever take this experience away from anybody. Nothing. Well, it might help yeah, you I, deal I, I, with you're, it. You're right, and there were several... Um Several people that were in the cast had have, have been in battle, and several people that were, you know, in the crew or were helping the film have been in battle and have been shot at and have killed people. And so, and you know, and I and I made it a point, Debbie, to hire as many actors as I could who actually had been soldiers in life. Mm. You know, that was really important to me. It, for exactly those reasons. It definitely, it pays off, Rod. I mean, it pays off in spades. You know, when you actually found out you were definitely going to do this film, to direct this film, how did you go about approaching this? Because this is a very, the way this is shot, the way this is structured, is, and the way everything sneaks up on you, there's no build-up to, oh, okay, well, we're going to have a battle here. We're going to have a fight here. There's no build-up. Right. Everything no. comes out of the blue. It's right. that element that, of surprise. That really important. So I guess in this interview, we haven't really established the fact yet that the movie is about a, uh, 54 men who are at the base of a, of a mountain, of three mountains in Afghanistan, and they, it was inevitable that they were going to be overwhelmed one day by the Taliban. But along the way, over the three and a half years of that um, post was there, they would get pot shots fired at them like every day. And so, you know, they, they really couldn't go outside. You know, they always, when they did, they had to be in full, what they call battle, battle uniform. Mm -hmm. and, um, and they lived with a dread that one day, quote unquote, the big one was going to descend upon them. And this movie is, you know, is about that big battle that they eventually would would have to fight. That October 3rd, and 2009 battle, yeah. October 3rd, it's called the Battle of Kandesh. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's really part of American military folklore. And it should be just a plain old part of American history. You know, it's, it, it is significant to this war as um, any battle has been to any war. And, you know, so... Um, you know, when you're, I went to, I, I went to go see Dunkirk, Chris mm -hmm. Nolan film, yeah, which to me is one of the best films I've ever seen, one of the best war films I've ever seen, and it's full of such high artistry that I said to myself, you know, 
I, if you want to make a war film, you can't just do a standard operating procedure anymore. There's got to be something artful about it. And um, and I decided to load up my movie with um, all of these, you know, long continuous uh, takes that we t- uh, shots that we talked about before. And you know that was going to be sort of my contribution to the cinema of, to the cinema of this. And I think that the, the planning for that. Allowed us to make the battle as realistic as possible because I didn't have to do any cutaways. I didn't have to um, fake anything. Everything mm-hmm. you know was happening right before our eyes. You mm-hmm. know, even the notion of filming almost the entire movie at the base was part of the process of building a proscenium and, and making it as claustrophobic and as scary as possible. And as as we go around the base, as we go around the outpost. It is scary because you cannot see what is around the corner. Because um, you have to fortify right. everything so heavily, you cannot see what's around the corner. So when all of a sudden we have an Afghan who is around the corner, you know, right. with his cell phone taking video, you right. don't you don't expect to see that. So it's like, okay, red flags are going up in your head. Yes, and even that shot, not in the battle scene, right? that shot that you're talking about is part of a long, continuous shot, which is, I think, how I made almost the, almost the entire film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, by, and, and I think that by doing that, Debbie, uh, we serve to heighten the tension because you never know what's going to happen at, uh, at, at any given moment. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah, so, you know, become, the whole thing becomes much scarier and... And, and much more grounded in, in reality, I think. It, it definitely is. And this isn't one of your typical films where, okay, you're building up to a crescendo, you're building up to a crescendo. This whole film is a crescendo. Uh-huh. Because you don't yeah. know. Yeah. You yeah, don't know that's, what's that's coming. Good way of it. Yeah, um, the whole movie is a crescendo. Especially, you know, the second half of the film is oh, battle. You get to that and 107 mark, Rod, and... I honestly, I was on the edge of my chair. I almost slipped off of it. I was on the edge of it, you know, with my feet just up on my toes. And I don't think I blinked. I know my mouth was open and I was holding my breath. And it was relentless. It didn't stop. It just kept coming and coming and coming. And I kept thinking about these soldiers. In that insanity, there's actually a story or, or multiple stories being told. So it's not just, you know, fireworks. I mean, there's, no. you know, there are human dramas that are going on, um, you know, relentlessly throughout that entire thing. And you get a sense of what these, the hell that these guys, you know, that, that they went through. I mean, you, you look at, you mentioned the, the stories that are happening, and there are, there are plenty. You've got Carter, Caleb Landry Jones. We're talking Oscar time for Caleb. Yeah, I, I, you know what? I'm, I would really say let's keep advocating for that. You know, we're going to have an issue because we're out so early in the year. But, uh, Caleb is, uh, is he's just masterful. And by the way, if you knew the real Caleb, you would think you would really realize. Yeah, I've, I, I've interviewed Caleb before in the past for some of his very early roles. Yeah. And yeah. not only was he sweet, but he was so shy and quiet. And, 
Yeah, and, but also physically. Yes. When I met him, he had hair down to his ass. He had, uh, you know, he was skinny like... Uh, like oh, my God, oil. he's like a stick. Let's just say, and let's just say that... He was one of the guys celebrating when marijuana was legalized in Los Angeles. <laughs> and um, and then I send him to meet uh, the real Ty Carter, the Medal of Honor recipient. And Ty calls me and he says, he seems great. Um, is he going to work out? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know. But he did work out and he ended up being, you know, physically right for the part. And. I mean, he's one of the, I believe he's one of the greatest actors in America. You know, you, your audience probably, they don't know who we're talking about right now, but you will. They will. You will. They will. Absolutely will. And, yeah. but watching him and watching that third act, that entire thing between Carter and Mace and Carter yeah. just, after the dogging that we see him get in the beginning of the film and he's not part of anything and he gets that dressing down um, mm -hmm. out on the road that right. people don't they can't trust you so right. the, yeah and it's like we're tired of hearing oh. from you and but then to see this transformation in this character and to see him battling and fighting so hard to save yeah. one one brother in arms well it, it's really interesting that because ty carter in real life and that's okay in the film did not get along with the entire unit mm -hmm. most were mostly ostracized but, um, and the other guys were all like buddies and frat house guys and, you know, and their, and their behavior and they goofed around a lot. And, you know, Ty didn't really cotton into that. But by the end of the, by the end of the, uh, that battle, everybody respected what he did and that, you know, he fought for these men like they literally were his brothers. Yeah. Because that was the only reason these guys had to fight was to keep one another alive. And um, and that you know and that really came to to play. And the other guy who uh, received the Medal of Honor was the guy that's uh, that Thais replaced, Clint Clint Romanshay. Mm -hmm. And you know they couldn't be more opposite as soldiers or more opposite as men. And um, you know and he has his own transformation in the film. Yeah, so you know I, I I think you know we concentrated of course on the battle of it all and the combat of it all but we also really concentrate on the character of it all as well well and that's that's really that is what comes through that's what sets this apart um to a large degree is that we get to know these men we get to know them individually collectively the scene where, with the one and he's on he's on guard duty and he's just got that picture and he's just oh when I see her I'm gonna hold her I'm gonna hug oh, her oh yeah yeah don't, but don't don't spoil the joke I'm not gonna <laughs> spoil it and I'm just like oh my god and then you get you find out exactly what's going on and oh my it's so endearing it's so sweet yeah. and yeah. you see yeah. that throughout the film Rod very unexpected. These very human moments. Um, the, right. That kitchen scene where you've got the camera in on a close-up, not an ECU, but just a close-up, on the omelet being made, a cheese right. omelet. And then right. you go from that to a soldier sitting at a mess table eating an MRE. And yeah. that, that juxtaposition there, it right. keeps no, us... I'm um, glad you caught that, that's... That's very, that, that was very much intended. 
and it's um and, and you're right the juxtaposition of that tells you know tells us a lot and you know that you know sometimes our life is okay sometimes it's terrible and um you know but it's never all right and yeah and look you know it's um i i think you're getting this movie exactly the way that i hope the people would get it but you know you're a film expert so you're catching things that others might might not as well yeah I mean, what's your favorite war film oh my god my favorite war film i don't know i actually am extremely partial to hacksaw ridge yeah. And I love the emotionality in that and Desmond Doss's story. Are you are you religious? I am. A lot of people don't think I am, but I actually am. I uh, find that people who have uh, who have a sense of God are are very very not enamored of Hacksaw Ridge because it's 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 as much a film about God as it is about war. Without without faith, Desmond Doss would not have been able to do what he did. Right. That's that. That is that is correct. That is correct. And you know, we we approach religion a little bit in, in our film and mm -hmm. how the soldiers feel about uh, how soldiers feel about religion in in general, which I think is variegated. But there are some people with very specific approaches to it. So you know, it's another thing that we we delve into. You know, there's a point where Carter and uh, Gallegos are talking about. Um, Gagos is uh, another one of the soldiers who perished in the battle, but they are they are talking about uh, God, and you know clearly uh, Carr doesn't believe in God, and Gagos says, you know, you know, the, the, the Christian God is often being forced to to get his way. Carr mm -hmm. says, um, you know, uh, the Muslims, you know, also believe in that. Must hear God or something like that. And he says, "Well, we can't both be right." And Carter says, "Yeah, but we can both be wrong." It's so you know, that that's a real truth. That I think that some of them feel. You know, there's a song at the at the end of the movie that I wrote that um, you know deals deals a lot with um, religion and um, and the soldier and mm -hmm. God and the silence of yeah. God. It's a or beautiful yeah. song. Or the or the yeah. Thank you. But you know, one of my one of my one of my favorite lines in the film is actually God's plan is our chaos. Right. Yep. That, yep. We made that one up on the spot, actually. That is um, one of my favorite lines in the film, Rod. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. You just look at the world around us. And obviously there is a plan. And yeah, we may have chaos and we're the ones making the the chaos and we gotta figure out how to get out of it. Um, yeah, that's true. That is that is that is uh, that is really true because there is no order to the world. And one of the one of the things about um, well, what's happening in, in Kandesh is that uh, the Battle of Kandesh and the just outpost uh, Kiti in general is was chaos. Yeah, that uh, anything can happen at any moment, and that is another scary thing to, to delve into. Mm -hmm. And it's something that everybody should be able to relate to in this day and age. Yes, and I, would say, I would say that's true. Which makes this film so so timely. But, Thank you very much. You know, but talking about the faith and the spirituality in God that you do get into somewhat in the film, I have to say, some of Lorenzo's uh, lensing, the cinematography, really addresses that. And I think I mentioned that 
in what I wrote you, that the one scene meeting with the elders and there's light streaming through, but the way right. his camera picks it up, it picks it up, it picks it up just as if you'd be laying in your bed and just sun rays are filtering through a, a curtain. And it's very spiritual when you see that. Well, yes, it, it, it is, but in a Sherm building, what happened, it also comes through the roof mm -hmm. when there had been an explosion. And so it's also a, a reminder of their, of their vulnerability. Mm -hmm. um, but, we, but we did, you know, it's so interesting that you bring this up because a lot of times we chose when it should be seen based on when we knew that there would be sun, sun rays wow. that would be streaming in and would give that sort of ethereal flair to, to the book of the film and also maybe to a symbolism of, of the film. It really, oh my God, I'm so glad you did that because that's exactly what it does. And of course, yeah. I have to say the most beauteous sequence of the film, which turns into something very horrific, is the patrol walk and the river. And oh yeah, that is, and this is something that I truly appreciate what you and Lorenzo have done with this film, is everybody always thinks of war as... And Af Afghanistan, Iraq, anything like that is just sand, it's dirt, it's mountains, there's nothing. Right. There's no beauty. So what if bombs get dropped, things like that, there's nothing there. But you right. see scenes like this and you are reminded that there is beautiful country there. And you there, that's a scene where you've got sun just streaming down, dancing right. on, the, on the moving water. And yep. it's, it reminds you of God's grace. Well, Lorenzo Sanatore is a brilliant uh, director of oh. photography, and uh, and I, uh, you know, we don't have time to get into it, but the, but you know, we, we had so many shots that are literally unique shots in, to any to any film, that you know, where he, it's not just his ability to light and to frame, but also his creativity and how to get the shots. Yeah, you know, I I would tell him that I want. You know, that, uh, for example, that I wanted to get a shot that goes from a God's point of view down through a turret during an explosion, and all this in one shot, and to, and then to go into the Humvee, and then, and then film all the guys inside, and like, we're all wondering how the hell is that possible, but he figured out a way with, I, I think he, you know, I have an engineering degree, but he's the guy that, that, that really, really <laughs> uh, put it, who put it into um, into and completely into uh, into into full effect? I got to tell you, Rod. Some of the camera angles, some of the angles, and mm -hmm. some of the ways that he sh that he's shooting that camera. I'm trying. I was going. I'm trying to figure out how he did it from an well, engineering you know, standpoint. We also have to give credit to the camera operator. Oh yeah. Um, a guy named Sa Sasha Proctor who came down from Vancouver. But, you know, you know, Lorenzo, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, the cinematographers remember him come, um, you know, come awards time because he really pulled off some here. And Debbie, I'm telling you, if you knew how much dough and time we had to work with, it would be even more gobsmacking, crazy. That sequence you were talking about on the bridge uh -huh. is uh, very influenced by John Toll's work on um, the Thin Red Line. Oh, that just is such a beautiful, beautiful sequence, Rod. Yeah, thank you. I know we have to finish, but I, but I want to make sure that I get this in, that all those filmmakers appreciate, um, you know, 
journalists such as you. You know, it's like you really, you really love film and you study them so carefully and you don't give them short shrift. And it's amazing you can keep up with all the movies that you do. I try, Rob. I try. You're, you're a good person. Oh, thank you. You know, I would be remiss. I've got to ask you about... Your, your sound design and Michael Duthie's editing. It's, oh, my God. I know with all the Warners, okay, it's great from an editing standpoint, but you still have to have that pace. And then your yeah. sound design, what Chris and Ryan do with sound. Oh, my God. It's, uh, it's really it's, it's really amazing. Uh, first of all, Michael Duthie, is a, is a, he's a classic... Um, a, a classic editor, you know, he's he's worked on some really great films. Oh. He's been working on films since like Superman. I know. Back in the Chris Reeve Superman, and he, but um, and uh, he's a guy. He's a fantastic sounding board. He knows cinema very well. And if there are some scenes that are troubled, he finds a way, a way to fix them or to um, to uh, to uh, to enhance them. He's also extremely good himself with uh, with sound work, and it was a you know complete pleasure working with him. And uh, and the sound guys are oh. like masters. Oh. And you know one of the unfortunate things about this film that is going to be mostly seen at home, in people's homes, is that you know we worked so hard on getting it into the Atmos uh, system mm -hmm. in sound, where I you know I had all these sound effects coming from so many different locations. And I spent weeks working on that, and um, and these guys are they're they're just masters, and um, I hope that they also are recognized at the end of the year. Yeah, the sound the sound here, the technical levels of this film, Rod, are superlative. They are all award worthy. Um, right. You know, right down to Eric's production design and designing yeah. Outpost Camp Keating. He got he got it, he got it perfectly perfectly. Absolutely phenomenal. We feel like we're there. And of course, all of this started with finding that perfect location. Yeah. The, lo well, the location is incredible. Well, yeah, the location was a, was a quarry in Bulgaria. And some of those mountains that you see there are all CGI mountains. And that's how good, that's how good they are. Wow. You, know, you could never tell that, yeah. No, I never, never. I know that you shot over in Bulgaria, but I also know they've got mountains. They do, but they don't have, a, but they didn't have mountains where you could put in an, a base, an outpost, base right. like that. You right. Know, and at least not within shouting distance of Sofia, which is where we were all based. You know, we couldn't go mm. too far away from, from there. You know, you know we had scouted in, in Morocco, and there were some, Good stuff there, but the bureaucracy of the Moroccan government prevented us from shooting. Mm. And I have to say, I'm so happy you brought Larry along for the ride to do your score. Well, Larry's the best. I, <laughs> Larry goes, where, where I go, Larry goes. I, there was one movie I did not work with him on, and that's The Last Castle, and that was Jerry Goldsmith. But, uh, you know, Larry and I, we're very, very close right now, and um, where I go, he goes. And he's a master at um, the oscillation between major and minor keys, mm -hmm. which is something that I really like to have in my movies and uh, and was predominant uh, uh, predominant here. Yeah, no, the the scoring is beautiful. And here again, it's kudos to your sound design and your sound yeah. mix because the score doesn't overpower anything. It's right. It becomes an ambient element to the film. Yes, it, it, 
that is that is really true. There, I mean, there is a there is if you listen carefully, there is there is a theme, but it, it it's it's not it's not overpowering, and Larry is not he's not showing himself off. Yeah, from at all, um, and you know, and, and during the battle, we have almost no music, which we didn't really feel that we needed. No, you didn't. All. So now, at the end of the day, this is finally coming out for people to see, yeah. and hopefully, screen media is going to put this into theaters by the end of more theater theaters by the end of July when theaters finally open. Well, um, we're going to be in whatever theaters we can find in the beginning of July. Yeah, and uh, and then we'll see we'll see how we'll see how it goes from there. It's it's mostly going to be seen on VOD, and that's what people can see also. So you can go to like iTunes or wherever else, um, you know, get your VOD and um, and see it and see it that way. And uh, and yes, maybe if movie theaters uh, do open up throughout July, we'll start moving into some of those. But yeah. now that you've, you're ready to, to re- unleash this, to release this to, for everybody to see and be moved by, I've got to ask you, Rod, what did you take away from this film? Because this is a film unlike any other that you've made. The subject is like any other. The circumstances, your personal circumstances during this film, unlike anything that anyone can even imagine. What I take from this film is that I really am only going to make movies I care about. You You know, for the rest of my life. It's going to be no money gigs. It's a, I, I, I spent too much time with them, and I, I have to be invested. And I was so invested in this film. I doubt I'll ever make a film more personal. I doubt I'll ever make a film more important. But in order to get close, it had, they all have to be meaningful at this point. This film will never leave me, Rod. I can tell you. you that. It truly has imprinted on me. Thank you very, very much for that. And I have to say... Hunter would be so proud. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. He would be. Uh, I know he would be. This is... I can't talk about too much because I'm going to start falling apart. But, yes. Uh, at this point, I just, you know, I'm just sort of a little overwhelmed right now. You're talking about my son who passed away during the making of the film. And, um, yeah, he would be proud. Thank you. Thank you very much, Debbie. And thank you for bringing up my boy. I appreciate that. I think I'm. I think you found a way to uh, attend this interview properly. Yes. I, I don't think I can speak more than that. But no. I. But uh, I thank you very much for that. And that was Rod, my exclusive with Rod Lurie talking about the outpost. It is out in some theaters around the country this Friday. Uh, everywhere else, it will be available on digital VOD. It is the best picture of the year. I am secure in stating that now. Uh, and kudos to the incredible cinematographer Lorenzo Senatori, Michael Duffy, the editor. Uh, Greg Powell is a stunt coordinator on it. Uh, Eric Carlson, the production designer. And as I mentioned, Chris and Ryan with their sound on every level. This film is excellence, and it will move you. Um, But now, we're going to move on to something else and say a big, big hello to Michael Cuenca. Hi, Michael. Hi, how you doing? I'm fine. You were an an eager beaver today. You called in really early. (laughs) 
<laughs> wanted to make sure. Pam and I thought Kim might have put the fear of God in you. Dial that phone. Dial that phone. She's done that. I know. I was like, oh. She's said, well, thank you so much for calling back and, and giving us a couple extra minutes so that we could uh, wrap up uh, the interview I did with Rod. Um, but I'm sure, so sure. I'm so excited to talk to you about your new film. I'll be around. Um, awesome. Number one, it's gorgeous to look at. Um, oh, that's uh, that's that's Jessica Gallant, our DP. Jessica's work and your color correction on here, your saturation, it pops. And what I love that's... is that you then composing about half of the music in the film. The music pops along with the visuals. You've got a great marriage going on there. Oh, thanks. Um, you know, where did this is a film for 30 somethings? Um, mm -hmm. Not Gen X, not millennials, but the 30 somethings. They need their own voice, and you definitely give them a voice with I'll Be Around. Lots and lots and lots of voices. I don't know how you kept your sanity with so many. This is dialogue heavy, dialogue driven. Uh, I can't remember a time when I have seen or heard this much solid dialogue in a film with this many moving parts that all by the third act integrate. Um, this how are you still sane, Michael? Let's start with that question. How are you still sane? Uh, that, that was a tough, tough process. <laughs> oh, my God. Where did this idea come from for you? Obviously, well, you fall I mean, into this generational bracket. Right. And I, and I love, and I, and I grew up with films from, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s that okay. do capture that essence. Okay. Yes, they and, do. Um, are, uh, are very dialogue-driven, very character-driven. Um, and this story, within one week, I had rewatched uh, Linklater's, Richard Linklater's Slacker and uh, Robert Altman's Nashville, the 70s film. Mm -hmm. And for years, I've been talking about doing a movie about a uh, music scene, showcasing every band, their fans, the, the promoters, all that jazz. And it all just hit me at once that this is the kind of story we should tell. And... Um, we shouldn't focus on one band or one protagonist, but a huge group of people mm -hmm. uh, to really showcase what a music scene is like. Yeah, because we've seen the films that, that showcase the music scene, the music itself and bands and they're profiled, be it in narratives, be it in documentaries. But this you really do encompass. You create this entire world of so, you know, um, centered around that yeah and, the, and the, the film itself um it's about fatalism you know if things uh do happen for a reason which is kind of how the movie came about because uh not to get too deep into it but i got stuck in a in a drug loop um i was accidentally given something i shouldn't have taken and i got stuck in a thought wondering how i got to where i got mm -hmm. and so i kept replaying all the scenarios in my head and trying to figure out how I got to where I, where I was at the moment and it blew me away. So I wanted to showcase some film also that uh, portrays fatalism in a way, which is, um, you know, the, the character Kip, which is the hopeless romantic. Uh, he represents that. Mm -hmm. um, he wonders if, you know, things do happen for a reason or not. So everything that happens in the movie itself 
kind of leads into the next theme. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a domino effect. And uh, I feel that a lot of people aren't catching that the first go. I mean, they certainly can't because it's such a dense film. You know, mm-hmm. you're getting all these snippets of dozens and dozens of characters. Yeah. And you're sort of learning how they relate to one another. But at the same time, you're entirely overwhelmed. But, um, you know, intentionally, it captures that feeling of coming to a new town. And that, that's a bit represented by the Babs character, which is the first singular character we see in the flick. And you're thrown into this long-standing music scene, which is a bit incestuous, a bit worn. Uh, these people have known each other for a long time. And you're just like, wow, what the hell is going on? Um, I guess it's kind of like being thrown into a long-running soap opera, you know, and you have to figure out all the different plot lines. Mm-hmm. And that's all intentional because, I mean, you know, why why not do something like that? I feel like that hasn't really been represented too much in film. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you go about, because I know you co-wrote this with Dan Roger. When the two of you, you got this, you got this bright idea, and it's, all right, yeah. let's sit down and let's write this. How do you even tackle writing something this dense with this many major characters? We're not even talking about how many people you have in the film altogether. We're just <laughs> we're just talking major characters. How do you even start to tackle this from a writing standpoint? The very first thing we wrote, which is my favorite stuff actually, which is the stuff with the burglars in the kitchen. Oh God. <laughs> and we had this idea about this these two burglars that may or may not be in a band, and they're going around and robbing uh, from the Airbnbs that people have, you know, around this music festival. Um, and we're like, okay, so that would just be two sets of characters, and let's just keep showing all these different characters. And kind of like the, the film Slacker, the Richard Linklater film Slacker, um, we weren't supposed to go back to any of the characters, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and then we started to fall in love with them too much. And we're like, let's, let's keep bringing them back slowly. Um, we felt that it might be a little confusing, but again, that's, that's part of the, I want to say the film's charm. And so um, we just kind of started inventing characters for every type of scenario. You know, we wanted the, uh, the teenagers that are trying to sneak into the fest. We wanted the, the younger girl, uh, Samantha, who's wide-eyed and wants to start a band. And then you have the jaded musician, that's a lot older. And then you have the musician who's been trying for years to find success and he's not getting anywhere with it, you know? So it almost became like we were trying to fill certain aspects of what a music scene is like. And hence all the characters started growing that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, after, after a while with rewrites, we started giving the dialogue lines to newer characters to pre-existing ones, you know? Mm-hmm. So we went through this long, arduous uh, uh, drafting process. And how long was the uh, writing process on this one, Mike? Wow. Uh, I think I think we started in uh, November 2016 and then finished the shooting draft. And um, we worked on it daily. So uh, I think it was uh, later... September of the next year. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. A lot of revisions. So we're talking about 10 months of solid writing on this. Wow. Yeah, we, you know, condensing characters, taking out scenes, mm-hmm. trying, to make, trying to make sure that the domino effect was really prevalent, that it was something that could be easily, um, you know, e- easily uh, decipherable, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, once you have it on the page... Before we even get into casting, you as a director have to envision how you're going to bring this to life. 
were you doing, you know, were you doodling, were you storyboarding, were you doing any kind of shot list or just little notes to yourself about, I see this in my head for this scene, I see this or I see that? Um, or did you wait until you had a shooting script and then worry about your visual tone and what your visuals would even be? Definitely shooting script first, and then I make myself a bunch of notes. Um, but because we only have, you know, we did the movie for about $10,000 or so. Um, I don't have the luxury of having these locked locations and really planning out these beautiful, wonderful shots. So we write the scenes and then I'll find the locations and then I'll make a bunch of notes on my script. And since I worked with uh, Jessica Gallant on uh, a prior feature mm -hmm. and uh, a couple of different shorts and that sort of stuff, um, we have a, we kind of have a mutual understanding of what we want, you know, out of the scenes. So um, we'll show up to location, and as the actors are rehearsing, we'll figure out how to shoot within that location, how to, you know, how to be able to spell out the script into visual form. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason, now that you tell me, you know, what you made this for, I am just utterly and completely shocked because just looking, the whole look of the film belies that. It looks <laughs> slick. It looks expensive. Um, even down to your costuming. Uh, because it is so period-specific, age-specific, and the whole music scene-specific. Um, it's not just, pe it, it, you know, it's not just walking into your closet or having a costume or say, okay, well, we can do this and this. And you have so many people uh, to worry about with costume. But even down to that, um, it be the, whole, the whole look belies, belies that price tag. Um, I easily thought this was a couple hundred thousand dollars. A lot of, uh, that's, uh, Le Leslie Django, our wardrobe stylist, and a lot of, you know, uh, Goodwill shopping, Salvation Army, thrift stores. Well. And she's accumulated a lot of stuff throughout the years. And, um, yeah, initially all the characters were supposed to pretty much dress in all black because they're playing a lot of darker music or whatever. And, um, since the cast is so huge, I really wanted everyone to stand out, you know? Even if you don't remember their plot line, at least you can remember them visually. And that's and that's a very good point. And I do have indelible images of certain characters of, you know, the blonde, blonde hair and sunglasses. Right. And there are things that definitely do stand out and make you remember specific characters. Um, and then you've got and here again, kudos to Jessica and and you working together to come up with this. Your night stuff, your night shoots, your interior club shoots, absolute stunners. Stunners. <laughs> You've got some real money shots happening there. Uh, I'm curious, for the night shots, were you shooting night for night or were you doing day for night? We only or did, I think, um, two scenes that were done uh, day for night. Mm -hmm. Um and then one of the major ones was uh, removed from the final cut of the film, which um, showcased, going back to the uh, generational thing that you brought up, mm -hmm. um, it's a scene between uh, Eve Valentine, the old jaded rocker in the flick, that mm -hmm. doesn't even know that if she really wants to be playing music. Yep. Probably something that she never really wanted to do. She just kind of fell into it and is just tired of it. And then you have the, the teenagers that are sneaking into the festival. And it was a really fun scene. A lot of people really loved it. Um, it just made the movie way too long. And I think the movie is pretty long as this, but, um, uh, it was them battling, uh, over generational differences because even though I guess it's a, 
it's a media term. It's called Zennial, which is the in-between generation between Gen Xers and millennials. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we we remember cassettes still. You know, we still remember having to show up at a place on time and not just texting someone or, and all that stuff. So even the kids argue about that. Mm-hmm. And how Eve had a really, uh, what's it called? And, I, and I'm sidetracking here a bit, but how Eve really had to drown herself in the music that she discovered. And these kids don't do that because everything is so instantaneous. But anyway, it was a really, it was a really long scene, a really fun scene, but because we shot day for night, I also felt that visually it, it just kind of stood out and it didn't look as great as everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think if maybe we had shot it when we had to shoot it, um, when we were meant to shoot it, it would have probably stayed in the movie. But, um, a lot of that fell into, um, so we made the movie for so little and all the actors had to take time off of work. I don't want them to miss work. So we shot around their entire schedule. So if wow. you can imagine a cast of about 50 to 100 oh my actors God. Oh my God. trying to work around their schedules, <laughs> it was insane, you know? Uh, well, that, that begs the question, how did you cast this film? And we're not talking about all the extras that you have. We're talking about your fifty. We're talking about your fifty to a hundred, just main players. A lot of them are are actors that are some of my favorite people to work with. They've been in my either my last two movies or my. Uh, I uh, Jessica and I used to work on a, a show called Oblivion. It was a half hour long web series. We were doing this stuff like in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, before streaming was a thing, so people couldn't even watch it properly because it was so long. Right. Um, but I met a lot of people through that and those actors I've worked with since then and in, in pretty much all my stuff. And even if they can only make it on camera for like 10 seconds, they're going to be in something that I've done because I just love them. And then a lot of other people, um, I'd say the, the other, a good quarter of them are, you know, uh, actors that just came to audition. They really loved what they read because it is about struggling artists. Mm-hmm. And even though we focus on musicians, they are actors. So they understand what that's like, mm-hmm. you know? Um, to pursue their passion and constantly get rejected for it. And then uh, another portion are actors that I know or musicians that I know that can act. So, um, you know, because we do have, we do need someone to actually play drums. We need someone to actually play a guitar or be really? able to sing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And you actually have some name musicians in there from the, from yeah, the, alt, my, uh, from the alt music scene. Oh. So... Right, a lot of my heroes uh, from growing up. So we have two old school uh, punk rockers from uh, early '80s bands, Frank Agnew and Casey Royer, both uh, both from uh, Adolescence and DI. Casey Royer was also in uh, Social Distortion when mm-hmm. they first formed. Um, those those guys were probably like 15, 16 when they were in those bands. And then we have Jay Mascus of Dino Junior, which is um, you know one of my alt rock heroes from the early '90s. So now, where did the music fall in with this? Did the music come to you that you were writing while, during the filming process, after the filming process, um, whenever the spirit moved you? How did that go about? Since, I mean, you're wearing so many hats here, Mike. You've got writer, director, you're ed- an editor. We haven't gotten to that yet. We're about to. Um, composer. <laughs> um, you know, so where did the music fall in the progression and the development of I'll Be Around? I, I tend to, uh, like bands that I've been in tend to be more in a melodic post-punk, darker side. Mm-hmm. And I do love early 90s, uh, you know, alt-rock. Um, so I wanted to capture both of those 
genres, you know, and so they're almost divided in the movie. The first half has that very uh, 90s feel to it. Yes. And then the second half, when the movie goes into night, the music gets a little bit more romantic, a mm-hmm. little bit darker. Sorry, that's some think on my end over here. No, um, no. And uh, for most of the scenes, I like editing to, to music um, just to get a, a rhythm. And so I would compile all the footage and then like the opening scene for example which is just a a, a running baseline mm-hmm. throughout that whole montage the first five minute montage and i have to say i I, along. I love i love that running baseline <laughs> that awesome. and that opening montage before we act before we actually get to the to the opening credit titles i really love that you could pull that whole section out and make it a music video that's, that's, that's a compliment, thank you. <laughs> I really, you know, I thought that was really unique from a from a sonic standpoint, and I, I really liked it. So yeah, for a lot, so for a lot of stuff like that, um, like with with any, well, my my favorite process in the entire, uh, you know, when making a movie um, is editing because that's when you can really shape everything and you can completely manipulate a scene to have a different tone than what you intended. Mm-hmm. You know, you might get a different idea and it can go in a different direction. But um, I really wa- originally wanted that to have like this really cool hangout. Yeah, it's going to be awesome day. But I'm like, I feel like something more melodic would work. And so, again, after cutting the, the footage, um, I just started playing along to it. And wow. that's how that baseline came about. And a lot of it also came out of necessity because I kind of, you know, I, I would cut a, a song. I would cut a scene to a certain song that I really love, but there's no way I could afford the rights to that. <laughs> um, so thankfully... So, uh, so I would just uh, compose a song that sounded a little bit similar or something that could replace it that would still keep that vibe, that energy that I was going for. And then um, beneficially having so many cast members that are actually musicians, I would have them come in and do vocals or be like, hey, I really need something in the scene that's out of my range of songwriting. Can you write something a little bit more electronic and weird? And a friend of mine would come up and give me a song and be like, I already had this laying around. Check this out. And it would work really well. So. Oh, how fabulous. Fabulous, because I really like the music. I lo- I like the music in the film, but I I like the the scoring part where you tie everything together, uh, because the the musicality awesome. is tied together here. You don't just have needle drops popping in and out. Um, you do have a musical thread that works. I mean, it's a, it's a... Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, I was just going to say you do have a musical thread, and it fits this dialogue driven. And dialogue heavy framework very well. Yeah, it can't, it can't be too overbearing because since it is such a dialogue driven film, you don't want to drown what the characters are saying. Mm-hmm. But they are musicians; they're they're in this music scene, so you know you want to set the tone and mood for each character. And yeah. you know some of them might look into different genres than another, so you kind of have to capture that as well. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so it's. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So, and I, and I think it also ended up working out where the songs aren't really recognizable, which sometimes, I love that stuff in movies, but sometimes, like you said, uh, the constant needle drop will take you out of the film. Yep. Yep. And sometimes, and you know, I'd say when you have a film that's so chalked with music, you really don't want real recognizable needle drops because it will, it'll distract you. And especially a film like this. Because you really do, oh, yeah. you have to pay attention to the characters, you have to pay attention to the dialogue, so you know who's doing what, going where, and when, and with whom. And like I said before, it's, it's, it's super dense, too, so they're talking about characters, it's kind of like uh, the Coen Brothers movie, uh, 
Miller's Crossing. Yeah. Where they're talking about characters that you haven't even seen or characters that you only saw for a second. And if you don't pay attention to that, yeah, you're, you're going to be entirely you're, lost. Yeah. You're lost. Now, how tedious was the editing process for you? Uh, not that tedious because, like I said, I um, something that Je- that I work really well with Jessica on is that we never shoot stuff that we know we're not going to use. Mm-hmm. You know, she'll be like, "You need to get, you need to get uh, another angle on this," and I'm like, I-, "I won't need it. I won't need it." And sometimes with other cinematographers, I'll argue a little bit too much because I'm like, "It's just, it'll just be a waste of time." Um, it's like it's I almost have it planned in my head uh, mm-hmm. exactly how the scenes are going to be cut, but. Um, yeah, so like the, I think the original, it wasn't that tedious, but the original cut was three hours long. And I was like, there's no way this movie's going to be three hours long because I'm a nobody. There's not really named stars in this movie. Uh, no one's going to want to sit through this thing. Uh, so, and that, and that also fell to a lot of improvisation because I love giving actors the characters and having them do whatever they want with that within that character's realm you know mm-hmm. so a lot of funny stuff a lot of really great stuff came out um they put a lot of their own personal experiences into those characters because they related to them really well or they could just escape into those characters so it was three hours long and then i ended up having to you know kill off a lot of that stuff and cut the movie down to two hours and 20 minutes which is my personal preferred cut because you got to hang out a little bit more with the characters mm-hmm. um and got to know them a little bit more but I had to kill my darling to just get it down to two oh, hours. Oh, yes, but there's always this thing called a director's cut or DVD extras. <laughs> right, right. So, but the, the other thing is people are still saying, this movie's too long for what it is. And I'm like, I think it's too short for what it is because there's too many characters. And um, as, I, as I like to say, I like, as I like to call the movie, it's Days of Confused with Stakes. Because Days of Confused, <laughs> you're just hanging out and it's a perfect movie. It's great. But this these characters actually have a lot of things on the line, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got to ask you, now you went with, for fundraising for this, you went through Seed and Spark. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What is your take on Seed and Spark? I know not they're not as well known as people doing an Indiegogo or Kickstarter or something. So I'm curious. Everybody I, I know that has worked with them loves them. I love them. I think they're incredibly filmmaker-friendly. They will help you even um, with contracts and uh, distribution process. They actually help distribute films as well. Um, they're really informative. I mean, I recommend them over anybody else, over Indiegogo or, or Kickstarter. Um, the thing is that I personally am tired of uh, asking friends and, and begging people that I slightly know for money. So, because it's my third feature, and I'm just like, you know, after a while, I'm like, I think I've, I've dried out that well, but. Um, yeah, I highly recommend anyone to go through Seed and Spark specifically. Um, and their fees aren't insane, you know. And then uh, when we initially did the, the crowdfunding campaign, it was through their Hometown Heroes um, offer, which was like, uh, I think, I can't even remember right now because it was two and a half, three years ago. But um, you basically competed, and the people that had the most uh, followers or people that were um, donating most of the film were runner-ups to possibly get their entire film produced by the Duplass brothers. Or to oh. get, a, I think, another $10,000 or something like that. I can't remember right now. Oh, now wouldn't that be something? It's a really something? great incentive, you know. That's a great incentive. And Mark and Jay, you can't do much better than those two for an indie film. Um, oh, yeah. So that was awesome. To yeah. come in and produce. Um, now, you just can't, you're just fresh off a four-day screening at American, at American Cinematheque, a virtual screening. Yeah. 
Now, how did that go? And you even did a, a virtual Q&A on Friday night. Yeah, it was me, uh, Jessica Gallant, the DP, and Dan Roger, the co-writer, with uh, uh, Cinematic Void, which uh, screens a, a series of cult films at the uh, Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. Uh, Jim was the, uh, the host for that. So how, how did this work for the virtual virtual screenings and your virtual Q&A? So that's, uh, I guess that's the, the new norm now. That, <laughs> but, so uh, fill, fill in all the listeners. Let them know yeah, how so, this uh, went. Virtual screenings is just instead of like going to the movie theater at 10 p.m. to watch a specific screening, you rent the movie online through the American Cinematheque. You have 72 hours to watch it, unlimited. And, yeah, you just watch it at your own convenience which is really beneficial to people that are really busy or, or whatever's going on. But, mm-hmm. And then the Q&A was done through uh, live Zoom. And could, and could fans, could moviegoers ask you questions through that, or was it a controlled Q&A? No, they, they basically signed up to the live Zoom Q&A and then sent in their questions. And, uh, and apparently we didn't get to half of them or something like that. Oh, wow. And it, was, sent- it was really fun. So. Wow. So, in other words, you do this again, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, where can everybody who was not able to see this film over the past four days uh, through the American Cinematheque and the Egyptian, where can everybody now see I'll Be Around? So, we're still supposed to go through the festival circuit. Um, I'm most likely going to make the movie available for a couple days via the main website. Mm-hmm. where you can rent it as well. And the website's ibafilm.com. I, and, uh, I even, if you go there now... I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. And now you... Okay, fine. You spoiled it for me, Mike. You know, I was going to... Here was going to show off. I knew your website. Uh, <laughs> it, by the way, it's a, it's an excellent website. I got, I'm like, I got to go look at it now. <laughs> it is. It's a really good website. But, but if you okay. go on there, yeah, you, you can see the trailer for the flick, and there's a screening page, there's an EPK if you guys want to look into. There's, there's actually a, a lengthy interview with me on there. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you have access as well to the pitch video that we did for when we started uh, the crowdfunding campaign. Mm-hmm. No, and the, the site's and it's easy, to, it's easy to navigate, easy to get through. But, oh, I would love to see that for you to make the film available on the site for people to see it. Yeah, because, you know, we don't know what's, what's going on right now, obviously, with the with distribution and, and the world and all that jazz. So it would be nice now that people are at home more, um, you know, to be able to check this out. And we got a really cool, a uh, uh, couple cool write-ups, and um, there's, like, a on Letterboxd. We're actually having this thing on Letterboxd. I don't know if you're familiar with Letterboxd, but it's um, basically a, a social media site for film nerds. Mm-hmm. And you can have your own film diary. You can, uh, you know, design your page to have your top four favorite films, present them on there. You get to meet other people that are into the same movies that, that you are. So um, we're having this little raffle that we're going to finally uh, uh, pull names on on Wednesday that anybody that goes on there and writes a review for the flick, doesn't matter if it's positive or negative or neutral, uh, they'll have a chance to win a gigantic, I think it's 24 by 36, I'll be around poster. Oh, nice. Um, very cool site. So someone on there actually wrote in, and I was like, because of because of quarantine and all that, and because everyone is in such a, you know, strange place right now, I almost felt like 
the movie has become sort of obsolete because it is about, you know, artists struggling and trying to get their art out and trying to be noticed and all that stuff. Um, and how much it sucks to just, you know, put, you know, put yourself forward and expose yourself to the world and constantly not even be noticed, you know? So I feel like now that the movies become obsolete, that I feel a lot of people aren't going to want to, aren't going to be able to relate to it or watch it. And someone wrote to me and they said that they actually had an opposite reaction to it, that it was really bittersweet and humbling to them and almost therapeutic because we almost captured uh, a day that you can't actually experience right now. Mm-hmm. It was like a last hurrah, which, you know, the whole movie shows 24 hours of this music right. scene. So you're like, oh, you get to hang out with friends and, you know, you don't have this sense of urgency. And, you know, uh, like I said, it, uh, that, that was, those were really kind words to hear. And it made me feel a lot better about the movie's future. I think it has a de- it definitely has a future. If nothing else, it makes us long for the days we can all hang out and just be around each other. Uh, but I think it captures the frustration of, you know, actors and musicians now who are kind of in limbo with their craft. Right, right. I, I really think that it's something that everyone, everyone in the industry can relate to on that level. Well, and that's, and that's the idea to create something that other people can relate to, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, if they see, if they, if they see a, my favorite films are when, when I was a teenager and you're more susceptible to that stuff and you're like, you watch something and you go, wow, I'm not the only person that feels like this. There's yep. someone else like me out there, you know? Yep. So uh, as a teenager, when you, when you discover those things, it's like your whole world just uh, becomes much more alive. You know, you feel much more optimistic about things. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Mike, we are all out of time. Pam is giving me the evil eye. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, because, you know, we, I did, we did go over to give you ample time since Rod's interview was so long. Um, but I'm I called so early. <laughs> you called, I love it. I, I would rather have somebody call so early than we're going, where are they? Where are right, they? Right. Um, we don't have that problem when Kim Dixon is your publicist. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you. But Mike, I hope you will come back on the show again with your next film or your or next project, whatever you're working on. This has been a joy talking to you about I'll Be Around. I awesome. I Thank love you. the film. I'm old I'm and I did. I'm old and I love the film. So <laughs> and and I will actually watch it again because it is so dense. So I'll be watching yeah, it again. Incredibly incredibly dense. So, oh, Mike, thank you so, so much. And we we will talk again soon. All right. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Michael Cuenca talking about I'll Be Around. And, yeah, check out the the film's website, um, ibafilm.com. And uh, since he says he wants to put it up there for a few days free, It's well worth watching. All right. We are totally out of time. Outpost in theaters and on VOD and digital on Friday, July 3rd for the 4th of July weekend. Perfect release for this film. Um, See it, see it, see it. Check around, look around for I'll Be Around. And there are a lot of other films that are out there right now. Sometimes Always Never is coming. Uh, 7500 is still out there. That is an award-worthy performance from Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But 
That is all the time we have right now. I don't think we're here next week because we may take an extended day for the 4th of July weekend. But when we come back, we will have a lot more people joining us. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.